Hi, Pastor Chad Tucker here from Doxa Church in Burlington, North Carolina. To learn more about our new ministry and to find out about how you can partner with us, visit us online at doxaburlington.com. That's D-O-X-A burlington.com. We hope you enjoy the message. Uh, This morning we're going to continue our look at the seven letters. We are making our way verse by verse through the book of the Revelation. And we've come to the church at Thyatira. And last week I gave you a, sort of a, an overview of the city and the church in Thyatira. And as we begin to look at this letter a little closely today, I simply want to kind of summarize the things that we're going to see uh, in this letter today to give you a summary, if you will, a summary statement of what this letter to, from the Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Thyatira is all about. So if you're planning to sleep through the sermon, as long as you get this, you'll get the meat of what I'm going to say today. Okay? Uh, So here here we go. Um, Today's sermon summary uh, is simply this. God is intimately aware of all that is going on within the local church. God will not tolerate a church that tolerates sin, especially within the leadership. He will patiently warn and graciously wait for repentance before bringing dire consequences that even gets the attention of others. Yet He will affirm, He will affirm and assure the faithful ones within the church now while rewarding all who overcome with specific kingdom promises for when he returns. And that's the the summary of all that we're going to learn from this letter today to the church at Thyatira. Let's read the letter. It's the longest of the letters. And it's also the letter written to the smallest of the churches. Um, you will see it's also the, the harshest words from the Lord Jesus. And He makes some very difficult statements for us to uh, understand. But hopefully as we look at these and we are reminded of these truths, that even as He said that He does these things, that other churches will know not to follow this route and go this way, may we too receive the warning. That God does not tolerate sin in the church. In the church. Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 18. Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know 
that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I am not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority, listen to this, over the nations. And he will rule with them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. Just as I have received this from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Thyatira was a city that sat right on the main road. In other cities that we looked at, there were um, mountains or, or, or hilltops upon which the city sat that could defend itself. But as we noticed last week, Thyatira is flat. It's actually a small city on its way to another city. In fact, today they're uh, in in what would be the the location of Thyatira would be a city of about 25,000 people. In fact, if you go there today, uh, you will see that there is a uh, only a uh, an excavated space of about 60 yards by 40 yards are the only archaeological remains that have been uncovered thus far. Part of that is because uh, of the fact that there's still a bustling city there today and you'd have to tear down the things that are there in order to see uh, what's underneath it. But back in the day of the biblical times, uh, Thyatira would have been a bustling city. And it would have been a city where there would uh, be a lot of trade and a lot of craftsmen. Uh, there would be some, uh, because of the location of the city, uh, the minerals that would be in the water and that would be in the ground would be some of the richest minerals that you could find. And people from all over the world would come to get some of these minerals because they could be used in a, a dye and be a deep red dye or purple dye. Uh, which was very fine cloths and very fine linen. In fact, uh, in Acts chapter 16, we read of a lady, a very wealthy lady named Lydia, who was from Thyatira, and she was a seller of purple or a seller of purple linens. And so Lydia perhaps made her money by being in Thyatira and taking these uh, creatures and crushing them and making this purple dye and dyeing these fine linens and, and selling them. Uh, perhaps that's how the church at Thyatira got started. The Apostle Paul led uh, Lydia to the Lord and, and, and those and perhaps she went back before she moved to Philippi, which is where Paul met her and uh uh, and establish a church. We, we don't know for sure. But what we do know is in this area, in this region, uh, as with the other cities, they would worship false gods. In this case, they would worship a god named Apollo, who was the sun god 
but he also was called the Son of God. In fact, his name is, sounds very familiar and he took on a lot of the characteristics and traits of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not sure if he was trying to mimic him uh, or things along those lines, but he was called Apollo, the Son of God. And so he would be the God that would be worshipped along with Artemis um, there in the uh, city of Thyatira. Um, within these, within these um, employment areas and opportunities, uh, craftsmanship, uh, there would not only would there be the fine linens, but there would be uh, metal workers as well. Uh, predominantly uh, bronze or copper would be uh, in this area. And, um, and so all of the metal workers would kind of come together and they would form this thing called a guild. Uh, a guild. A guild would kind of be a trade union, uh, if you will. And not only the metal workers, but the, uh, the fabric workers, uh, and all of the industry that was in that area. It's a very wealthy area, bustling city. Not quite as big as Ephesus or Pergamos or anything like that, but, but they would gather together within their areas of work and, and the, or these trade unions called guilds. And they would gather together for um, for fellowship. They would gather together for uh, kind of keep up on the latest trends within their uh, within their craft. But also, what they would do is those guilds, as they were called, would take on uh, a greater significance. They would have these guilds. Um, uh, these guilds would have. Festivals, uh, multi-day festivals, multiple times a year, and those festivals will not only include the coming together of everyone within their craft, but would include worship uh, as well. Not worship of the one true God, but worship of false gods. But it was vitally important to be part of a guild. Vitally important to be a part because if you were outside of the trade union or outside of the guild in your area, then it basically mean that, that you were not recognized uh, uh, in, in that particular field. And not only were you not recognized, but you were denounced and despised. And so to not be a part of that particular guild would be uh, basically death to your employment death to your wealth uh, and opportunities and you could not work and do the things uh, that you needed to do to provide uh, for your house, to provide for your living. So if you were not part of the guild in your particular area, uh, it was very difficult, if not impossible, to make it. So imagine that you're living there and imagine that you are uh, hearing the gospel for the first time. In your entire life, you've been a part of these guilds and you've engaged like others in the worship of these false gods. But now you hear the gospel, you repent of your sins, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you begin to follow Him, which means that you have to renounce Apollo, renounce Artemis and the other gods. And now you're wondering, what do I do as a Christian? Can I still participate in these guilds, which is part of my livelihood? Or 
Do I not participate in those things and lose my livelihood? There in Thyatira, there was one named Jezebel. Uh, Jezebel was not her name. Jezebel was just kind of her character of who she was. Jezebel had found a way, just like Jezebel in the Old Testament, to try to walk the fine line between worshiping and obeying the one true God and yet participating in the festivals and all the things that would go along with those festivals, including sexual immorality and orgies and all of those things. She found a way to encourage Christians to be able to do both. In other words, you can come to church on Sunday and worship Jesus and adore Him. And yet, when these festivals come up, you can go and do that. You can go and participate in all of those things. You have to do it for your livelihood. No worries. You are now a spiritual being, spiritually connected to God. And what you do in the flesh, well, you're just satisfying the appetite of your flesh. And God certainly wants you to be able to make a living. And so you go there and participate in those guilds, participate in that sexual immorality, participate in that pagan worship so that you can continue your livelihood. Now, how did she come to that conclusion? She came to that conclusion a couple ways. Probably a combination between Gnosticism and antinomianism. Gnosticism is the idea spread throughout the New Testament. It's a false teaching that basically says that there's a supreme, superior knowledge of God. And those who who know God know Him spiritually through this special knowledge. And therefore, you can live your life any way that you want to live in the flesh. Because your flesh is going to be buried in the ground and your spirit is what goes to heaven. So because you have this special knowledge of who God is, you can... You can Uh, Do whatever you want to do in the flesh and still worship God and go to heaven and be safe. And the other facet that would play into this false teaching would be antinomianism. Antinomianism would mean that there is a law... But because there's a law, we're not going to focus on the law because we're Christians now and we focus on grace. And don't you know that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound? And besides that, all of us are sinners and all certainly fall short of the glory of God. There's no reason to strive for perfection. There's no reason to strive for holiness. Listen, you just go and do. God would want you to do whatever you need to do to provide for your family, to provide for your livelihood and all of those things. He knows that we're all sinners. And if you engage in sexual immorality is because you have an appetite for it. And just like when you get hungry for food, you have an appetite for food. What do you do? You go and eat to satisfy the flesh. To satisfy the flesh, uh, you can just do that if you want to because after all, when you're dead, your body goes into the ground and then you'll get your glorified body. Antinomianism says there is a law, but none of us can fulfill the law. Only Jesus can fulfill the law. And therefore, we don't even have to try to fulfill the law. We can live any way we want to because God knows our heart. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever tried to justify in your own mind the, the or downplay? I like to say this, that we like to rationalize our sin. We like to trivialize our sin. That's no big deal. We like to justify our sins. We like to do all of those things, even though they're contrary to God's Word, believing that God will not judge our sins because we are Christian. 
And therefore, we come to church not striving and pursuing after holiness and righteousness and all of those things. We come in comfortable in our sin. We bring that into the church. And now all of a sudden, we have a church that tolerates sin. Antinomianism is certainly part of our culture today. There are churches everywhere that uh, no longer stress uh, separation, that no longer stress the law of God, that no longer encourage people to live holy lives. And there are churches throughout our land that never do anything to discipline sin uh, in the church at all. It's as though we certainly all know that we are sinners and therefore no accountability and therefore we um, neglect the commands of God to keep a pure and holy church. So here in this letter what we have is we have one who has uh, made it into the leadership of the church in some way or capacity and she is leading people within the church astray. Let's take a look at this letter and walk through it quickly uh, if we can. I want us to notice first of all, even as I said in the summary, that I want us to be reminded that God is intimately aware of all that is going on within the local church. He's intimately aware. Uh, for example, if you would take a look uh, there um, uh, in in verse 19, he says, I know your works. Well, who is he? Who is the I? He says, I know your works. We see in verse 18 that this is not Apollo, the Son of God. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And last week we mentioned that in, in all of these descriptions of Christ, they are fitting for the city. So in, in, in Revelation chapter 1, he gives a huge description of Christ and who he is and all these details. And then he pulls out a couple of these descriptions and he attaches them in the, in the, the description to the individual cities. So you can think about this, for example, in verse 18, thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. You think about the metal workers in those days. What would the metal workers do? How would they fashion and form and purify the metals that they were working with? They would put fire to it, right? And then the metal workers would, would bead and bang and do all those things and fashion and, and form there. So they certainly would be familiar in that city with both the fire and the metal worker. But it also goes beyond a connection to that city. He, he says that he is the son of God. And not Apollo, and the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame, piercing and seeing into the depths, burning out anything that's in his way that would prevent him from seeing, and whose feet are like fine bronze. Uh, an image, go back to Daniel chapter 10, uh, verse 6, and you will see that this has to do with judgment. So this one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like like bronze says this, I know your works. The word works there is the word ergon. It has the idea that I know that I know your acts, I know your deeds and your duties. I know the things that you have done, the things that you have accomplished. The CSB kind of says, I know your works, and then he kind of divides up what those works are. He says, I know your works, and then there's a dash, and it says, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. 
Each of these would be things that Christ could certainly see and know within the church. He says, I know your works, I know your acts, I know your deeds. He says, I know your love, and this love is the word agape. This is love that has a regard for a person uh, as understood by God's moral character. That's the kind of love with which they loved one another. It's the highest, greatest amount of love. It's also sometimes called the, the sacrificial love. It's the love that God demonstrated towards us when He sent Jesus to die for us. Now, none of us can fully... Uh, agape love another person the way God did, but according to His moral character, according to His definition of love, Jesus is saying that the church of Thyatira, they practice deeds of love, loving one another. The word know there is a, a knowing of personal, intimate, experiential knowledge. When he says, I know these things about you, he's not saying I've heard about these things. He's not saying these things ought to be there. He says, I have personal, intimate, experiential knowledge that these things are true. I know about your works, acts, deeds, duty, your love, agape, love, regard for a person as understood by God's moral character. I understand your faithful. Faithfulness means that your trust in the gospel is trust in the gospel content that affects the way that you live your life. He says, I know your service. The word service there is the word we get the word uh, deacon, diaconoia, uh, the deacon. In the early days, that word was taken from a restaurant, be a waiter at a table who would, who would simply serve the food. But it become to take on a prominent role in the church, even leading to the office of deacons. And he says, I know your service. I know the way that you serve others. I know the ministry that you do and are engaged in. And I know that in the midst of all these things, you do that as we looked at words several weeks ago, hupo maneo, with endurance to bear up under. To bear up under. Hupo maneo, endurance means to persevere. To have steadfastness in all that you do. You don't quit. You don't run away. Nothing distracts you. Nothing keeps you from coming to serve God and, and one another. You don't let the devil have his way. You press ahead. You endure. You persevere. You come in. You even sacrifice for the opportunities to come together and to be together. You endure for His name's sake. This was a great church in a lot of ways. Remember, this is a church, right? Is there anyone here who would not want that? The church at Ephesus was straight as an arrow, sound in doctrine, but they did not have love. Here, this church is characterized by love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. And not only that, but doing so in increasing manner. In other words, they were growing as this church was growing and growing spiritually in this area. Notice what he says. He says, I know that your last works are greater than the first. This church was on a great trajectory. This church was moving in the right direction. This church was characterized by a lot of great 
things in the Lord Jesus Christ acknowledges those things. And beloved, if I could say from this, if there was an example that we could lift up and that all of us individually in our families and as Dr. Church would want to be, it would be that the Lord Jesus Christ would see us in an increasingly greater participation, involvement in works, love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. That would, that would bless the Lord. To see Doxa Church growing in each and every one of these areas. You see, God is intimately aware of all that is going on within the local church. Aren't you glad that He's aware of those things that's going on inside this local church? Aren't you glad that He sees the things that we're doing, the way we're seeking to love one another, serve one another, the way we're seeking to be faithful. He sees the way that we're seeking to share the gospel, the ministries that we're trying to engage in individually and join in together to connect doxa, to connect the gospel with uh, the community. He sees us growing in an increasing manner, hopefully through the years in each of these areas, and it certainly would be pleasing to God. As I said a couple of weeks ago, oftentimes we want to get to the, but I have this against you. But let's just pause and reflect for just a moment that Jesus is intimately aware of the things that take place here in your lives and my lives. He knows even whether you're engaged with me in the, this message or drifting off into uh, daydreaming and things along those lines. He knows these things. He's intimately aware involved, and he sees them in greater capacity in the church of Thyatira. But it's also true, we see in verse 20 and 24, that God will not tolerate a church that tolerates sin. And sin especially within the leadership. Look at what it says here, if you would. He says, but I have this against you. Now, can I just on the out front simply say this? Beloved, you don't ever want if anybody in the world that you want to come against you. You don't want Jesus to come against you. You don't want God to be opposed to you. By the way, this is not the only time these letters are not the only time that God says that I'm against you. Uh, right, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The word right resist the proud means that He opposes them. He is face to face. He is against them. Right, it's, there's there's times when the Lord Jesus comes along, kind of side by side with His followers, and there's times that and with the lost world, and there's times that He is face to face, opposed against them. I mean, as face to face as McGregor and Mayflower Mayweather was last night in this boxing match he says I have this against you and he summarized all that he has against them and he takes the things that are going wrong in the church we're going to see that sexual immorality is in the church that worshiping false god and eating meat sacrificed to idols is part of the church but he says I have this against you he begins with the leader or the head of those things uh, uh, the, whoever this prophetess is named Jezebel not her true name but just her character he says you tolerate the woman Jezebel You've never met anyone named Jezebel. 
you, particularly if anyone has ever read the Bible and studied the Bible, they certainly would not name their child Jezebel. Jezebel married King Ahab in the Old Testament, and he was a worshiper of God. She was a worshiper of Baal. And when they were unequally yoked and married, she brought Baal worship into the kingdom. And all the things, the sexual morality and the orgies and the things that would go along with the worship of false gods, she brought with them in the temple. She chased after Elijah uh, and sought his life. He feared for his life because of her. I mean, this is a woman who, who, who had the opportunity to repent and come along and join in the worship of God. Instead, she deceived God's people. She introduced sexual morality, the, 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 uh, idea of false worship within the, the body of God's people and, uh, and ultimately, ultimately paid the price because God dealt with her sin there. We'll see that in just a minute, but but I want you to know that that he says, I have this against you. You tolerate this woman, Jezebel. The word tolerate means to allow, to permit the presence of. It means to permit without opposing. So who was this Jezebel? As, obviously, as I said, it's probably not her name, but this kind of revealed her character. She's a Jezebel. She calls herself a prophetess. Calls herself a prophetess. God didn't say she was a prophetess. She claimed to be a prophetess herself. Notice what it says. It's the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus said she's a prophetess. She says she calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and she deceives my servants. Now let's be clear about this Jezebel. The the idea is not that it's a lady who is teaching. That's not the problem here. In fact, Titus chapter 2 would command that the older men teach the younger men and the older women teach the younger women. There is a command in Bible that ladies, as you mature in your walk with God, that it is your duty and responsibility to gather around you younger women in the faith, regardless of the age, and pour into their life. But let's be clear, and just so there's no mistake about it, God does not call women preachers. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 15, God clearly says, I do not permit a woman to teach and have authority, spiritual authority over men. Women can be politicians. I have no problem with a woman being the president if God wouldn't, hopefully not the last woman. That's a different story. But if God raised up a woman to be president or be a politician, those things, listen, there is nothing in the Bible that would prohibit or that would stop that from happening, so to speak. But however, a woman at the helm of the church, God is against and opposed. And I would certainly agree with John MacArthur that if there is a lady pastor of the church, then you do not have a church and she is not a pastor. Let's be clear that God's created all male and female in the image of God. And we are created equally. Men and women are created just as equally as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And yet they they took on their roles. They voluntarily got into their roles where Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. And the Father led the path and the journey along the way. 
So much we could say there today. But the idea here is that she calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and deceives my servants. And what does she deceive her servants to do? To commit sexual immorality. That's the word porneo. To engage in sexual uh, immorality of all sorts of kinds, whether it's pornography or fornication or, or the act of sexual immorality itself. And also to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now, this is a different scenario than what Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul had some new Christians that were eating meat sacrificed to idols. And, and he said, I have no problem eating meat sacrificed to idols because, after all, what is what are false idols anyway? They're nothing. And if it's meat that's been sacrificed to idols, there were two places that you could get meat in the market. You could get very expensive meat in the marketplace or you could go down to the temple and buy meat. And that meat had been offered up to idols, but it was premium meat at a lower price than what you could buy in the marketplace. And yet he did go on to say this, though, but if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I will not eat it. That's not the same scenario of what's taking place here. There the Apostle Paul would eat meat that had been offered up to these false idols, which were no false gods, which were no gods at all. And it was now just for sale in the marketplace to whoever wanted to come and do it. Here she is encouraging and teaching and deceiving God's servants to participate in this worship. As they gather together in their guilds, they would eat these meals and offer up this worship to God. And in the act of this service, they would commit to sexual immorality and they would eat the meat that was there within the worship service being offered up to God, sacrificed to idols, and therefore uh, participating in idol worship. And God says that I have this against you that you tolerate her if you want to get an idea of of something else that she was doing look down if you would into into verse 24 verse 24 it says that 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 she was leading those in her church to follow this teaching and this teaching is the so-called secrets or the deep things of satan now, it wasn't that that, um, that she was saying, I have some secret knowledge of Satan. You can come and get it. God's not saying that there are secret things of Satan. Notice what it says there. He's talking to the rest who did not engage in these things. But there were those who had engaged in the things who held the teaching of the so-called, not true, but so-called secret of Satan as they say. Jesus isn't saying that I, he's not acknowledging the reality of secret or deep things of Satan. He's saying that's what they call them. And so what she was doing is, is she was leading them to, to believe or to participate in whatever these secret or slash deep things of Satan are. And beloved, God will not tolerate sin in the church, especially in the leadership. Why? Because as the leadership goes, the church goes. If you tolerate sin in the leadership, there will certainly be sin in the camp. And that church will ultimately be displeasing to, to God. And yet, truthfully, every one of us could look at ourselves and say, Who, who is worthy? Are we not all sinners? Is there one sinless who would be worthy to be a participant in church, let alone a leader in a church? 
Absolutely not. But we are striving and pursuing. And God is gracious, is He not? I want you to see that not only is God intimately aware of all that's going on within a church, God will not tolerate a church that tolerates sin, especially within the leadership. He will judge it. He will deal with it. But I want you to see that He will patiently warn and graciously wait for repentance. What about you? Notice what it says here in Revelation chapter 2, verse 21 The Bible says this, I gave her time to repent. So what did that mean? That that means that He came alongside her. That means that some way, in some fashion, He warned her of the consequences of the things that she was doing. The Bible doesn't record it. It doesn't say it. But if He gave her time to repent, then He waited patiently. God is long-suffering towards His children, if she was even His child, in their sins. And He warned her in some way, capacity. He gave her time to repent. How many of you are gracious and thankful that God is gracious and gives us time to repent. How many of you are thankful that at the moment of sin that God doesn't just come and judge and wipe us out, but what He does is He is gracious. He allows our our conscience to right to, to not be calm and settled. He brings conviction of the Holy Spirit upon us. He lets us know that there is some disconnect between us and God. He no longer meets with us in His Word. Our prayers seem to only go to the ceiling and not penetrate the ceiling into His presence. And we struggle to know and discern what is the will of God because we are out of fellowship with God and because we are in our sin. And yet God does all of those things because He loves us. It's godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And when God graciously brings godly sorrow in our lives, it's because He's calling us to Himself. He's calling us to repent and to to set aside these things and He doesn't just send a lightning bolt after us unless He's going to get our attention. But He gives us time to repent. In this case, He gave her time to repent. But look at the sad conclusion. The sad conclusion is what many people do today as well. She does not want to repent. Oh, how many times as I, as a pastor through 20 years of ministry, have sought to go after those who have fallen into sin or engaged into sin or slipped into sin or drifted into sin to call them to account and to call them to repent and return to God only to be told, you can leave now, pastor. You're not welcomed here. How many times have people justified their sin even in recent days? I've had those justify their sin, even sin of sexual immorality by saying God brought us together and this is what God wants. Beloved, God does not want you to engage in sexual immorality and I don't care who you are. 
or what you think. It's contrary to the character of God. It's contrary to the Word of God. And you do even greater disservice to God and bring greater condemnation on yourself when you say that God approves lovingly of sin. He does not. He is gracious and patient and will give you time to, and, and right, as He issues the warnings to repent and return. But it is a hard-hearted individual who does not want to repent in this case, of her sexual immorality, and thus judgment will come. God will patiently warn and graciously wait for repentance before bringing dire consequences. Look at these consequences that came here in this particular passage of Scripture. God says, look, behold... I will throw her into a sick bed. He literally says, I will throw her into a bed. The idea is that maybe it's a stretcher or, or maybe it's a, uh, uh, maybe it's a, a sick bed at a hospital that will bring about affliction. Uh, some have said that she's engaged in a practice of sexual immorality and sleep around in doing that he will throw her into bed and people will come and she's talking about STDs and venereal disease and things along those lines that would be that would come out from him throwing her in this bed regardless and it says and those who this word is not the word porneia this is a word that means who sexually engage through sexual intercourse with her I will throw them into great Affliction. Great affliction. Unless they repent, he says, I will literally kill her children dead. I mean, you're not just talking about striking them and inflicting pain. It's not just that they will die, but I will kill them dead is literally what it says. Now, now let's be careful here. God is not going to judge the offspring or the children of this providence necessarily uh, taking out His wrath on Jezebel and those who follow her. The idea of offspring are those who have been influenced by her and those who have followed her teaching, believed her lies, and are now espousing and expounding her truth. Those would be her offspring that would believe like her. Certainly could be her physical offspring, her physical children, but likely all of those who would who would join in with her and who would believe the things that she's teaching and engage and practice and propagate those truths to others. He will deal with them as well. To kind of give you a picture of what that's like, have you ever said this in your life? I am the way that I am because my mama was the way that she was and my grandmama or grandfather was the way that he was. Yes, you have. My wife is shaking her head no. The idea is not just that the personality was passed down, but listen, the influence and the way that they did things was passed down in that you, though you're not in your DNA characteristically destined to do the things that they do, but because you are greatly influenced by them, brought up under them, set under their teaching and all those things, you behave and act like them. That's the idea. 
when the Bible says that God is going to bring judgment on the, on the, on the, on the people and then the generations after them, it's not that He's judging the generations on what the parents did. It's just that they propagate that sin into the oncoming generations. And therefore, the reason that that He judges them is because they're doing the same thing that the parents did. That's why some people talk about breaking the generational curse. Stopping all those things and, and doing that. But unless they repent, listen, they will be under judgment. And that judgment will not only come upon Jezebel, but come on all those as well. And you say, does God really mean that? Listen, I absolutely think that He means that. And I do not believe in any way that He will not follow through on what He said He would do. After all, remember, it is the Lord Jesus, right? It is the Lord Jesus who called this lady Jezebel. He's the one that made the connection to Jezebel. And if you go back into 2 Kings chapter 9, you will see what ultimately happened to Jezebel herself. 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 34, what happened to Jezebel in the Old Testament? Then he went in and ate and drank and said, Take care of this cursed woman and bury her since she's a king's daughter. So they took Jezebel and they threw her off the wall and it says that her blood splashed on the wall. In fact, 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 32, he looked up toward the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three units looked down at him and he said, Throw her down. So they threw Jezebel down and some of her blood splattered on the wall on the horses and Jehu rode over her. And if that's not bad enough, they went in and they ate and drank and they said, take care of this cursed woman and at least bury her since she's a king's daughter. 2 Kings chapter 9 verse 35, but when they went out to bury her, they did not find anything but the skull, the feet and the hands. So they went back and told him and said, this fulfills the Lord's word that he spoke through his servant Elijah the Tishbite in the plot of land at Jezreel. The dogs will eat Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's corpse will be like manure on the surface of the ground in the plot of land at Jezreel so that no one will be able to say this is Jezebel. That's why no one names their daughter Jezebel, just like they don't name their son Judas. Jesus is the one who makes association whenever he says, I will judge her and bring this on her. Listen, he is not kidding. He is joking. He has done it before and he will do it again. And by the way, there's not a church in Thyatira today, so he did it. Why did it have to be so cruel? Why did it have to be so hard? That's a question that could be asked multiple times throughout the Bible when God brings judgment. And simply put, it had to be in order to lead others into the the path of righteousness and to deter them from sin because God takes sin seriously. The reason the, the reason the consequences are so dire is that it gets the attention of others and it deters them from engaging and participating in it. And that's exactly what God's intention is here in Revelation. 
Notice what he says. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Interesting when you think about the heart. The heart is the word cardia. It's kind of where what we would consider the seat of the emotions, but the the mind, uh, the thoughts would also be connected to to the heart there in this passage of scripture. Because where it says mind is actually the word nephros. Nephros has to do with the kidneys. When you go to a kidney specialist, who do you go see? Nephrologist. This is the word nephros. So literally, it's not mind and heart, it's kidneys and heart. But that would be the, the seat of the emotions and the will and things along those lines. Then all the churches will know. He set an example by dealing with it there. And that has a way of right straightening the others out. It's the start of a new year and I heard about this teacher who uh, was greeting the parents as they come in and, and brought their children. This one parent came to her and says, Look, if my son acts up, punish the child next to him. He learns best by example. <laughs> but the fact is, we do learn by example. And we see these things happen in the lives of others. It has a way, does it not, to call us to attention and to do those things. And that's what Jesus intended. Remember the towers of Siloam that fell on those people in Jesus' day? And the disciples said, look, what brought this on? You know, what sin did they commit that brought brought this on them? He says, unless you repent, the same thing is going to happen to you. You will all likewise perish. Why do these things have a way to call us into account? To call us to kind of straighten up and to live the right path? It's what God intended to happen. But not everyone in the church had succumbed to that. And not everyone had engaged. Notice what it says. Verse 24. He says, I say to the rest of you. Who are the rest of you? Those that did not engage in that sin. Those that did not follow Jezebel's teaching. Those who did not engage in her practice. Those who still sought to serve God. Those who lost their livelihood because they no longer participated in the guilds. Those who were suffering maybe have lost their house, lost their way of life, and lost their families. But they were faithful to God. Those are who the rest of you are. He says this, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, and he defines them, who do not hold to this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan. Notice what he says, I'm not putting any more burden on you. I'm not putting more pressure, any more burden on you. You have a lot. In fact, I'm going to come and I'm going to help you bear up under the burden that you have. Aren't you glad that when God has to bring, right, uh, the consequences of sin, that He doesn't just necessarily come in and wipe out everybody, but He knows those who are faithful. And He says, I'm not going to increase your burden. And He gives them this word, only hold on 
to what you have. Jesus, it's hard. Hold on. But it's tough. I've lost my job. Hold on. I've lost my house. Hold on. Listen, how am I going to eat? How am I going to do all of these things? They might as well kill me. That's what they did in the other churches, right? That we've read about so far. And here they didn't kill them. They let them live. But live in that poverty without any employment, without any livelihood, and all of these things. And Jesus says, holy, hold on to what you have until I come. Until I come. Beloved, I don't know about you, but there are times that I get weary in well-doing, even though the Bible says, do not become weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you faint not. Let this be an encouragement to you to not grow weary, to not faint, to press on, to bear up under the burden. Listen, don't let the weight of Satan drive you away from worshiping God. Don't let weeks like you've had this week, many of you this week, cause you to miss your quiet time with God, cause you not to fellowship with God's people, cause you not to pray, to not get distracted and discouraged. Hold on to what you have until He comes. Don't let those things sidetrack you. Clarence, brother, there's no wonder that the devil's after you. You just stood up and made a stand for Christ and followed Him in believer's baptism. And all of you are here. You're planting a church. You're telling the devil, I'm not going to let this county go to hell. We're going to stand firm and we're going to preach the gospel and we're not going to compromise on anything. And the devil doesn't like it. And he will devour us if he has the opportunity to do so. But let me say this. Only hold on, Jesus said to what you have until He comes. You say, preacher, when's He going to come? I don't have any idea, but it's sooner now than it was five minutes ago. Only hold on. Will it be worth it? Sure to be worth it. Not only does He give you what you need to hold on, but He gives you promises for the future. To the overcomer, we've already seen the overconquer, the one who conquers, the overcomer, are all believers in Christ. I will give Him authority over the nations. Bring Psalm 2 in here. The authority was given to Jesus, the nations were given to Him, and He shares that with us. To He will rule them with an iron scepter. That word rule there is the word shepherd, pastor. He will pastor them with an iron Scepter, he will shatter those that need to be like pottery. But notice what he says I will also give him the morning star. What in the world is that a reference to? Well, if you go to Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, the Lord Jesus Christ is called the bright and morning star. The promise is that the church faithful to the calling of God will eventually receive the morning star. That is the abiding, close, imminent, and eternal fellowship with the Lord Himself. And listen, that's the greatest thing that you could ever want. What He says is that you will have the abiding, close, imminent, eternal fellowship with the Lord Himself. Everywhere you go, He's there within eyeshot, looking and knowing and affirming the steps that you're taking and the things that you are doing. And I'm thankful that this promise isn't just to the church at Thyatira, but it's for you and I today because this letter closes with, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the 
church is. And beloved, that's you and I. Two things in closing that I want to turn our attention to. Number one, number one, are you saved? And are you walking with God? And do you hate sin as much as God hates sin? And do you hate the sin in your life? If you are here and you claim to be a child of God and you are carrying on, you're ensnared in sin, you're carrying the weight of sin, there's some, right? There's some thorn in your flesh that just will not let you go or you choose not to let go. Beloved, I want to encourage you now, deal with that thing yourself before God has to deal with it. You get along before God and give it to Him and say, God, I don't want this to be a part of His life, a part of my life, because God is graciously waiting for you to repent and as you uh, repent of that thing, to change your mind about it, to change your actions toward it, and do those things. God is graciously giving you time to repent and to return to Him before He brings about the consequences of those sins. But secondly, those of you who are faithful, who are bearing up under the load, who find the days are difficult and dark, who are walking in fellowship with Him, beloved, my admonition to you today is simply hold on and don't let go and you will be glad. But beloved, that promise is only to those who know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. If you're not saved, that's the place to begin. To be saved and walking in obedience with Him. Let's stand for prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word, for it instructs us. Thank You for Your Word, for it challenges us. Thank You, Father, that You indeed are intimately aware of all that is going on even within Doxa Church. God, I would to God that there would be people in this place and in our city who would no longer tolerate sin, particularly in their own individual lives. But God, as you are patiently warning and gracefully waiting, would you lead them to repentance? And Father, may they come and set aside those things that they are engaged in that are displeasing to you. Father, will you affirm those who are bearing up under the pressure and load now, feeling the weight of this sinful world crushing down upon them? Would you give them the energy and strength to press on a little longer, to hold on a little longer, and to even anticipate your coming? I'm thankful, Lord Jesus, that you said that you're not going to place a burden. Only hold on until you come. Father, I pray that every day as we feel the weight of the burden around us, as we feel the pressure of the world squeezing us, that, Father, that we would find ourselves looking up unto heaven and drawing close to God and being found faithful until you return. And, Father, we're going to give you the glory for it all. We look forward to reigning and ruling with you. We look forward to shepherding people with you. We look forward to giving you glory as you return and as we go to be with you forever. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.